Alright, thank you for joining us on another podcast here at You Say You Want a Revolutionary. And today is pretty exciting stuff. Usually, I, uh, I cover somebody from the past that's done something either in philosophy or politics that we would term like revolutionary, whether that's in action or in the development of some sort of a idea. Most of these people happen to currently be dead. I haven't talked about anybody so far that is actually still living and involved in you know intellectual discourse or publishing new works or anything like that. But I recently read some works by today's person and it was a little bit mind-blowing. It was kind of, it was an excellent book and uh, it's everything that I usually talk about all rolled together, right? I often tell students that I studied history when I was uh, in university because I wanted to understand why things are the way they are. And then I studied philosophy because philosophy to me was always sort of like the history of the ideas that moved people to action. That action, of course, being what we study in history. So the two subjects were and are, in my head at least, always linked together and can never be torn asunder. Um, Yuval Noah Harari in his recent works does an excellent job not just of helping to explain how we got to where we are, but also a great job of kind of uh, predicting a way forward where we might be headed in the future. So it's kind of an exciting, uh, exciting podcast here, a little bit different than usual. Yuval is an Israeli historian coming out of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and Oxford University. He's born in 1976, which means he will be turning 42 this year, I think. 40, 42. His, uh, his birthday's in February, I believe, so happy birthday, Dr. Harari. Oh yeah, he has a doctorate from Oxford, I didn't say that, so that is Dr. Harari to you. He's written two books relatively recently, both of which are international bestsellers. We have the first one that we're going to be discussing a little bit today called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. He released that uh, in English in 2014. And his second book is Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow that he released in 2015. A Brief History of Tomorrow is pretty cool. It sounds like some sort of uh, sci-fi title or something like that. And the first book, the first book, uh, Sapiens, is on Barack Obama's must-read book list if you find that important in any way, shape, or form. He lives in a little village in Israel with his husband, who he married in Toronto in the early 2000s. Shout out to Toronto and progressive laws here in Canada. He meditates about two hours a day, and he is a vegan. One of the things that I always found interesting when I was a little bit younger and I did some work in anthro um, is the idea that at some point in world history, our species was not the only human species on the planet. We are homo sapiens, of course, uh, homo sapiens sapiens, which means wise man, a title that we, of course, gave to ourselves, however deserving or undeserving we may be. But in the past, there's also uh, homo, ne homo neanderthalensis, neanderthal man that lived in Europe. There's homo erectus, there's homo ergaster, there's homo habilis, there's homo heidelbergensis. There's all kinds of different members of our uh, hominid family tree not just us, but now it's just us. We're alone. Things went south at some point for all of those other guys, and we have dominated to the point where we've taken up residence on every continent on the planet, and uh, there are like 7.7 .7 billion of us currently, I believe, kicking around in the world, and that number is set to grow, of course. One of the projections that I saw was about 12 billion people by 2100. Why? Why did we outlast everyone else? Why isn't the world full of Neanderthals? Why isn't the world full of, you know, 
one of those other guys. Harari argues that we thrived when all these others failed because we have a distinct ability that they possibly did not. We had the ability to cooperate together in huge, flexible numbers. This is pretty spectacular because the reason why we have this ability is because we have the ability to tell ourselves stories and believe those stories. This, of course, comes from our big brains. Not the biggest, all anthropologists will tell you that Neanderthals have bigger brains than humans, but we have the ability to use our brains in this particular way. Now, our brains are actually pretty um, costly, so they must have some sort of benefit. They're very big, they're very heavy. Being upright with a huge brain ruins our spines and it hurts our feet, feet, feet and it gives us headaches. Uh, we use about 25% of our nutrients on feeding our brains. It requires more blood and more oxygen than any other organ. So we need to eat more regularly, right? If you've ever owned a lizard, for example, how often does a lizard or a snake have to eat? Like once a week? I don't even know, but very infrequently. Their brains are small. Our muscles have shrunk as a result of our huge brains and the needs of our huge brains. I'm about six feet tall and I weigh in at about 200 pounds, give or take. But a regular sized chimp at like four feet tall and 110 pounds would literally be able to tear me apart. And as he was doing it, I would cry and scream and yell about my big brain. Uh, but why is our brain so big and what does it do for us? First, this isn't just Harari who, who, who says this. We use our brain to run simulations all the time. Given any certain set of circumstances, we think, okay, what should I do here? A, B, C, D, E. Which one of these is the better one? I'm out in the wherever, I'm hunting a water buffalo, and it turns to face me and it stands its ground, you know, horns pointed in my direction. Do I like A, run, B, run and scream, uh, C, hit it with a stick, D, shoot it with an arrow, or E, turtle and whimper softly? I'm going E. But then we run all these possible outcomes through our heads, and we project what's going to have the best results. And we do all of this in a fraction of a second. This is related to what Harari describes. What he describes is just like this next step. Harari says on a larger scale, we tell ourselves all kinds of stories and we believe them. And by doing that, we accomplish great things collectively all together. In ancient Egypt, for example, on becoming a pharaoh, a young king's gonna immediately start building his tomb, his pyramid. It's gonna take years, sometimes decades, it's gonna be extremely costly. But it's only possible because the people in that society all believed that it was important that the story of their religion was true. It needed the combined effort of thousands and thousands of people and it only worked because everyone believed that it was important and it, that, that it had to work. In the major monotheistic religions in the world, people act in a particular way because they believe the story of their religion. Big huge cathedrals in medieval times, great works of art, uh, good acts of charity, only possible because people believed that it was necessary to the story, and they believed the story. Of course, this is oftentimes a double-edged sword. We can do great things when we work to together cooperatively, and at the same time we can do horrible things. The, the Pope once told early crusaders that dying while on a crusade would instantly get you into heaven regardless of any other sins that you had committed in the past, and it was believed. Think, we are the only species that this would work on. As Harari points out in his book, you can't get a troop of chimpanzees to attack another group by convincing them that if they go to fight, they're going to go to ape heaven. 
We can pack big stadiums and concert halls with thousands and thousands of members of our species, and usually things go relatively well. We'll come in, we'll watch whatever it is, and then we'll leave in an orderly fashion because we believe that this will work. If you were to fill uh, you know, a stadium with 10,000 dogs or 10,000 cats or 10,000 chimps, 10,000 elephants, there's no way that this would not degrade into absolute chaos. I mean, take, take your dog, for example, right? Cook up some bacon for your dog, and before giving it to your dog, try to give him a little sermon on how eating this uh, piece of meat is not halal or kosher, and see if your dog cares when you put it on the floor in front of him. Harari says that religion is really one of the greatest stories that we have ever told ourselves. It's a story that has moved people to cooperate together for good or bad for thousands of years. It isn't that all stories are bad, necessarily. Um, it's really a question of, are the results of believing this story beneficial? Which is a really William Jamesy kind of style of measurement. A big example that affects all of us on a day-to-day -day basis is money. Money is uh, one of the things that has allowed us to get a leg up in the development of our species. Think of it. Money is a made-up story. It's a story that only works when we all believe it. And right now, it is probably the most pervasive story around the world. Money's believed in everywhere. Let's say I, I work for a day. You give me a piece of paper that says $100 on it. I take that piece of paper to the store where I trade that $100 piece of paper for some other pieces of money and some food. This only works because we all believe that this money is worth a particular value, a value in trade. If I work for you and you give me shells, can I take them to the store and trade them for stuff? I actually can do that, but only if you also believe that these shells are worth the same as what I think they are worth. It works because we believe it will work. We believe that different countries have different currencies and that all of these different values are comparative to each other. Some have more, some have less. Money might not be the root of all evil. It's allowed us to do some good things. It is a means of, of telling the haves from the have-nots for sure, but it's also an easily transportable expression of value. Bartering could never do that. Right? Imagine I have, I have three dairy goats in my backyard, but I need some clothes. I need a new sweater. What, what clothes are worth my three goats? Do I take my goats to the store with me and see what I can trade? That's really inconvenient. Do you want goats in your store? What if my neighbor is trying to sell all of their goats at the same time? Do I get fewer clothes because there are lots of goats available right now? All of these questions like disappear if we convince ourselves of the story of money. Well, maybe, maybe not completely disappear, but there are fewer questions surrounding value. We also believe in the story of the nation-state. One of the books I remember reading way back in the day was, was Hobsbawm's Nations and Nationalism since 1780. Pretty good book, uh, and I haven't thought about it in years. But Harari's idea is similar. The nation, the country, it's a story that we believe in. Canada, that's where I live, is only a thing because we believe it's a thing, even though it has no tangible existence. We've told ourselves the story of Canada because we're willing. We believe in it, and we can't imagine it any other way. We think that being Canadian is some trait that people have, whether you're on a trawling boat off of Newfoundland, in a suit on Bay Street, or an Inuit woman living in a Calloway, that there is this thing called Canadianness that all of these people have in common. We believe that without countries and police and courts, everything is going to go all Thomas Hobbes style, nasty, brutish, and short, and that's the only way that we've ever lived. So get what he's saying here, right? What he's saying is that we have, as a species, have at numerous times in history 
willingly laid down our lives and even killed each other and even had ourselves killed for something that literally only exists inside our heads because we all agree to think the same things. So, I mean, a group of people wrote some words on a piece of paper and presto, a country existed where there wasn't one before. You have a kid, you fill in some paperwork, you register them as a citizen, and boom, your country now has another member. You go to a ceremony, you stand with a person that you're in love with, a third person says a few words, you say a few words, and pow, your reality just changed. You are married now. But it's all just a series of stories, narratives that we have created and that we have chosen to believe. Like, like corporations, for example. The most recent example of this possibly could be the corporation. Corporations have existed for a long time. I think the first one was uh, the Hudson's Bay Corporation. It's been around for what seems like forever, but really it's just a legal fiction. It was created by lawyers, by corporate lawyers, uh, in order to allow wealthy people to maximize their ability to gain money. Another fiction. They don't exist, actually, in real life. Harari explains that you can tell this with one kind of oversimplified sort of test. They can't suffer. They can't feel any pain. The Ford Company is a fiction. It isn't tough. It isn't rugged. It just makes trucks. McDonald's isn't young and fun. It makes horrible food and tries to get parents who are, like, overtired to buy it for their increasingly unhealthy children, right? These companies, if these companies lose money, the corporation can't suffer. There's this guy called Edward Thurlow who once said, Corporations have neither bodies to be punished nor souls to be condemned. The, the workers can suffer, so can the customers maybe, but not the company because the company isn't real. It's just a story. It's like Harry Potter. Now, I said Harry Potter and I can hear people shouting, Harry Potter is like totally real to me. And maybe you're that guy that dresses up like Harry Potter with your little cape and your wand and whatever. And Harari probably knew you would say that, because he also tells us that we are particularly bad at understanding when a story is fiction and when it's real. We want to believe, like the X-Files, we want to believe these stories. And that this is due to an evolutionary purpose as well. Believing in our society's stories is a benefit to us, usually. Just like running realistic scenarios of like, do I do A, B, C, or D is beneficial, the stories that we tell ourselves have usually given us an increased chance of survival. But if you are a young political person, or any sort of political person, or a socialist, or an anarcho-syndicalist, or whatever you might be, here is where things might become a little more interesting. The problem of the modern age that Harari describes is that two of our most prevalent stories are no longer working together. They have gotten a divorce. And like in any divorce, we are divided on which parent we want to stay with. On the one side, we have humanism, the idea that emphasizes the value and agency of human beings, that the benefit to human beings is how everything should be measured. In the past, this has given us stuff like the United Nations, civil rights laws, the idea of human rights, I guess, in general, equality, uh, good health care, education systems. The idea of democracy, I suppose, would be a humanist idea. And we all claim to believe in the value of democracy. The second idea is capitalism. Think back to the early days of the Cold War, or earlier still to the ideas of Adam Smith. Capitalism was good, we are told, because it allowed people to make choices with their labor and with their money. If you worked harder, you made more money. It allowed us to compete with each other, which drove us forward, which made us invent cheaply priced automobiles and dishwashers and Netflix and flat screen TVs, all benefiting humanity. Or, at the very least, I guess, providing us with some sort of need that we, that we had. 
If there was no need, the product couldn't be sold. These businesses have provided jobs for these hardworking people, and these people, if they worked hard enough, could rise up the social hierarchy based on merit, based on effort. The police will safeguard people's hard-fought earnings, and our soldiers will protect us from other nation-states that may see to seek to take our goods, our land, or destroy our way of life. But that's a problem now, because those two ideologies, capitalism and humanism, are no longer married together. We are sitting here left trying to figure out what to do now. Who to side with? What story should we tell ourselves? Like, if, if you were to ask people 50 years ago if hard work could move you up the social ladder, we would have probably gotten a yes from most people. This is the Horatio Alger story, right? The, the rags-to-riches tale. But here's the thing. People don't believe in social mobility anymore. I mean, I've, I've read at least four studies in the past year that detail exactly how little people believe that they have a chance of success beyond what their parents achieved if they just work a little harder. And with jobs being offshored and crippling student debts and a housing market that seems sort of impossible to get into, you can see why. I mean, you've got corporate bad actors everywhere, you have environmental degradation caused by these corporations and violations of workers' rights all around the world, and it all adds up, this capitalist story, and it's simply not believed by a growing amount of people in the world anymore. For me, this this kind of helped me make sense of comment sections on some web pages, not, not like YouTube comment sections, because that is just the dregs of humanity, but real newspaper comment sections. Let's take a particular issue, like increasing the minimum wage. You have people lining up into these camps. One group will say that inflation has gone up, and we need an increase in the minimum wage to help people in our society making the least amount of money, that they are falling further and further behind every year. They'll live better, they'll buy more, and eventually it's going to benefit everybody. Then the other group comes out and they say, why can't they just work harder and get a better paying job? Because then they're going to make more money, their kids are going to be better off, and it will benefit everybody. Now, I used to think that the latter group is just composed of absolute, you know, jerk douchebags who were just insensitive and, and didn't understand the way the world worked. And I still kind of think that, but at least I understand a little bit more about how they live with themselves. You see, the ones that are being genuinely misguided still believe the capitalism story that they haven't seen or they don't fully willfully or otherwise they don't fully understand how these two stories humanism and capitalism have divorced in the past 50 years they're still not people that i agree with but now i at least know why they have come to these conclusions harari also talks about the importance of technology and the rise of human beings uh, these new human beings. He's of the belief that within the next 50 years, we're going to have technologically advanced human robot-type cyborgy things. That might sound terrifying or it might sound cool, but there's more. And this is more important perhaps for the right now anyways. It's also going to come at a time when we have a giant group of people that he calls the useless class. This is kind of a harsh term perhaps, but it's descriptive because these are people that are not just unemployed, these are people that are unemployable. There are no jobs for them to do, right? And we already sort of see the start of this. We have automatic checkouts at stores. We have robotics making our cars for us, making anything for us. I mean, was it just this past year, 2017, that Budweiser made the first driverless beer delivery in a big-ass Volvo transport truck? There was nobody driving, and it delivered beer to people. It seems, seems heavenly, uh, but Google and others continue to work on their driverless cars, right? If they can get these mass-produced and onto the marketplace, what will the ramifications of this be? We have no idea. 
It could be huge. My car, if you take a look at it, it's the second most expensive thing that I own, and it spends like 80% of its time without me in it, just sitting there, not driving. That is not efficient. Now, if you ask me, I'd say I own it because of convenience, the convenience of having a cheap ride anytime I need one. But is that the best use of anybody's resources? No. It isn't a couch or a chair. It's not something that just sits around my house and gets used by multiple people all the time. It's my car. I'm either in it or I'm not. And I'm not in it very much. What if I could call up an electric self-driving car for 7 o'clock every day to get me to work and drop me off? It can then drive to another person's house. It can pick them up, take them to work. The idle time would be limited to as little as possible and maintenance is going to be the problem of like the dispatcher or the owner or whoever. If it's just as convenient as my car and cheaper, what's going to happen to the car industry? Ford, GM, there are about 2 million people in North America that are employed directly or indirectly by the car, the, the auto industry. What happens to those jobs? And I mean, you see this working out in some places around the world when you have politicians arguing that jobs will come back if they do this. But really, progress is not going to stop. Technological development, barring any massive catastrophe, is not going to stop either. Arguing that you're going to bring back a dead technology so that people can have jobs again is like, is like a politician arguing to bring back the horse and buggy industry because, you know, these newfangled cars. You're not going to stop it. It's going to happen. So what does all this mean? Well, for one, we have literally no idea, Harari says, what the future is going to look like. Our education system is probably trying to educate students for jobs that don't currently exist and we don't currently understand. Unlike life a thousand years ago when families lived and died on the same farm for generations, going to the same church with the same neighbors, uh, the one thing that we know about the future is that change is inevitable and it happens fast. To my way of thinking, this is what it kind of means, and this is what Harari left me thinking about. You see, the stories of the past are no longer believed by people around the world. We are increasingly secular in North America and Europe at least, but that trend is increasing everywhere. The story of capitalism is floundering at best, especially among young non-North American people of the world. The story of patriotism, the nation-state, is falling to pieces, and the story of the good corporation is seen as a complete and utter falsehood. The narrative of humanism survives in some form, and human beings are going to be in need of a new sort of tale that we can believe in, something to make it all make sense. And remember, stories aren't necessarily bad, they're good if they are beneficial. The progress of time is inevitable, and we are rushing headlong to meet the future without any coherent narrative that binds us together in any discernible way at all. We don't have a way that is going to help us make sense of everything that is happening. Malcolm X once said that the future belongs to those that prepare for it today. Well, start preparing, because it's going to be up to each and every person to be able to tell the truth from the falsehoods when we choose our new narrative. And I, for one, want to make sure that whatever our new narrative is, it places equality and human life above profits. We're going to have to see through charlatans that made us kill each other in the past for values like imperialism and the spread of, quote, liberty. It's going to be up to us to not believe it when we're told that we have to attack another group because they hate our freedoms and we need to, you know, spread freedom to them. It's up to us to not believe it when we are told that our race or gender or sexual orientation is superior to theirs. We can't believe, again, that poverty should just be the natural state of some people 
that the market has no use for, and that some people have always suffered, and that justifies further suffering. We need to choose a new path, a better path, and to decide where it's going to take us and how we are going to get there. And that task, my friends, is yours. Thank you very much for listening today, and I hope you enjoyed this episode.